Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back, as always, with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Um, it has been an exciting time seeing Luis Robert perform at the Home Run Derby. Um, I know I'm feeling pretty chipper about that, but gentlemen, how are we feeling? How are we doing? How has the last week of baseball treated you? The fact that there hasn't been much baseball has treated me pretty well, I'll be honest with you. Um, other than that, I, I think the general consensus is what we've all really enjoyed was the first round of the Home Run Derby. Um, I didn't think Robert was going to beat Rutschman, I'll be honest with you. Right after he hit those 27 homers, um, I love how he kind of stole the show there and then promptly did a White Sox thing by aggravating a calf muscle or something like that. Hopefully it's not serious. Um, he's been healthy all season, so I don't consider it to be that serious. Um, that's a long-winded way of saying I'm fine. I, I think once we record next week's podcast, we got baseball under our belts. I'll be a little bit different, though. Yeah, it's definitely been a nice little break away from White Sox baseball, which is not to say that well, I guess it is to say that I don't want to watch them right now. <laughs> I take it back, but uh, I'll do it anyway. And yeah, uh, to echo Jordan there, I I get why everyone is reacting so negatively to the Robert news. I mean, obviously I saw it and my first thought was like, of course, that's such a White Sox thing to happen. But at the same time, it does sound very precautionary and very minor. And I feel like they've actually been pretty transparent and pretty accurate about that this year. So maybe he'll miss, you know, like a week or something. But I, I don't think this is like the end of the world or anything. And for anybody who has like any last shred of hope that um, this team can find a way to not sell before the deadline, um, not having Luis Robert as they start in Atlanta and continue on um, after that, right after the all-star break is probably going to put an end to that. Simply put, you're without your best player. You don't really have much to go on right now. That's probably going to be the end of it for anyone who might have hope that they're going to turn this around somehow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty brutal if you still have that type of hope. I, I feel bad for the eventual crash because all, we've all experienced it in some sort of way throughout the course of the season. But if you're still holding out hope that uh, Lucas Giolito is going to be a White Sox long term, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. And I agree don't do that, that to me. <laughs> that wasn't even directed at you. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying. In I general. know, but still. <laughs> Laz is fired up. But anyway, it's great to you guys. Um, obviously, you know, obviously Rutschman going both sides of the plate was pretty, pretty baller. Hate that he had to play against Luis Robert and uh, Luis Robert just straight up like stone, stone face killer, just murdering baseballs and just dashing the dreams of both ESPN and all the people who are going to write stories on the great Adley Rutschman story. You just absolutely love to see it if you're a Chicago White Sox fan. So I'm going to enjoy that. That is that was my that made my week. I'm going to pretend like nothing else happened with the Chicago White Sox today, and we are going to move on. But before we continue to move on, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. So a little bit later in this episode, we will be answering some fan questions. But before that, Nick and Jordan, I know you guys had the opportunity to sit down with Sam Dykstra. Um, MLB Pipeline um, and minor league baseball reporter, as well as MLB Network contributor. 
Um, and you guys were also joined by our own MLB draft expert, who was actually the guest on our previous show here at Sox on 35th, Michael Suaro, to break down the 2023 MLB draft. All right, we are now joined by Sam Dykstra, MLB Pipeline reporter and MLB Network contributor. First off, before we get started, Sam, thank you again for taking the time to join us and offer your expertise on the draft and specifically some of the White Sox players. Um, I think some of your knowledge is going to be huge to helping Sox fans who may not dive into it, um, the, the draft as much as you and others do. So really do appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. It's always fun talking about draft and, and the next generation of uh, baseball stars. So I actually, let's start there. Kind of how did you get into um, talking about the draft and getting into following it and studying the players as much as you do? What, when did you start working for MLB Pipeline? And then kind of what sparked the interest for you? Yeah, I mean, I've been a baseball fan all my life. Um, I went to school for journalism at Boston University and then was just applying for sports jobs wherever I could. The reason I went to BU was it was right down the street from Fenway Park, right? Like that, that was a huge thing having Fenway basically on campus was a big deal for me. Um, so I wanted to write about baseball, but I was applying everywhere. And uh, my first job out of college was writing about the minor leagues for MILB.com, the official website of minor league baseball. Uh, in March, 2012, I had been there for a while. And then the mill group uh, merged with MLB pipeline. And I got to work with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo um, and so many other good folks at pipeline that happened in March of 2021. So I got more involved with prospect rankings, more involved with draft coverage um, and have been doing that ever since. So it's kind of a question I've asked a lot of people and you start to see it like pop up. I mean, NBA is one of them. NFL is one of them. When do you start prepping for the 2024 draft? Now that you're kind of done with the 2023 draft, I'm always curious in people's answers to this. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's already started Uh, a few weeks ago, I was actually down at the PDP league in Cary, North Carolina um, at the USA national training complex, USA baseball national training complex and evaluations of these guys have already started. I mean, Jim and Jonathan lead our draft coverage and they do all of our rankings and I contribute in coverage to coverage where I can, but getting to see those guys was huge. I remember going to the PDP league myself two years ago and seeing guys like Drew Jones and Jackson holiday and, Tamar Johnson and speaking to those guys and thinking like, oh, these guys are going to be good, I think, if they show out here and now they're top 100 prospects. Um, so, you know, some of the guys I saw uh, at the PDP League, I'll be telling Jim and Jonathan about and they'll be talking to tons of evaluators. I mean, the, this cycle never stops. So one thing you said there, talk about watching players and be like, I think these guys are going to be good. How do you learn? I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this. How do you basically learn to trust the process that you're going through when you're evaling guys, when you're building draft boards, when you're saying these are some of the pros and cons of these players? How do you develop sort of that feel for players um, and their skill sets? And again, how do you trust yourself with that? I mean, it's a lot of reps. And, you know, uh, the basic tenets of my job are to be a reporter or to talk to people and find out who scouts think are best, who evaluators think are best, or if it's on the pro side, farm directors or other execs. Um, But then, you know, there's so much access to video now. You can see a lot of these guys. I mean, the the access to minor league video from when I started in 2012, where everything, you were lucky to get an HD broadcast. And now basically everything is in HD across the minor leagues is huge. And being able to look for yourself, like you might hear a guy's touching 95, but go see if he's actually touching 95. He's only 92, 93. Okay, take that into account. 
Um, so it's a lot of reps. It's a lot of just trying to trust your stuff, seeing what these guys can do and back it up with actual information from others. Yeah, that's great to hear, Sam. I think definitely just it's something that fans like myself probably don't really think about, like just the proliferation of HD video itself. But <laughs> obviously, I can imagine why why it would make such a difference. But transitioning a bit to this particular draft for the White Sox, I think first we would just love to get your thoughts on a high level in terms of uh, the team's strategy this year. If there's anything in particular that stood out to you, of course, we'll get into specific players. But before we do that, is there anything about how the team drafted? Are there any uh, trends you noticed that, that interests you? I mean, they went pitcher for four of their first six picks. I mean, I think that's kind of basic strategy. Pitchers are tougher to find. They're tougher to develop. Um, Things can break down, so you want to be taking a wealth of pitchers. But, I mean, going with their first six picks, shortstop, pitcher, pitcher, catcher, pitcher, pitcher, it's um, highlighting, you know, how important it is to develop guys up the middle, to get a guy at at shortstop. I know we'll talk about here in a bit, and Jacob Gonzalez, out of Ole Miss, and then getting his teammate out of Ole Miss at catcher in Calvin Harris in the fourth round. Um, you know, those are the tougher spots to find guys at and, and develop major leaguers. So if you can find real talents, lean into that. Um, if you look at where the White Sox are in terms of like our rankings, in terms of like, did they stray off the board? I think they were pretty w- well within our rankings for the first, certainly the first five picks. Um, and you could even go through the first nine. I don't think they really strayed off the board that much. Uh, didn't take too many risks, but also didn't, uh, you know, really reach too much. It, so it, it seemed like a solid draft board considering where they were drafting, which was always in the middle of these rounds. Right, right. That makes sense. So let's actually talk about somebody you just mentioned in Jacob Gonzalez. This is a pick that has really split the fan base so far in a sense that some are worried about his ability to stay at shortstop and his uh, potential development path. But at the same time, he is also, you know, a very successful college player with quite the pedigree and uh, contact skills, et cetera. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Just how do you feel about that draft pick? And do you think that there's a, leg- a legitimate concern that he might not stay at shortstop? Or do you think that he will be able to stay in the position? I, I don't, I'm not that worried about him sticking it short for now. Um, yes, he's a below average runner and that's always kind of a concern, but he has enough instincts to be there. He has enough arm to be there. I think if you're the White Sox, you play him at short as long as you can. You you would love to have the great problem someday where he's bumping into Colson Montgomery and you have to make a decision between those two, but I don't think they're there yet. Um, so I think he can have the actions to stick it short. Uh, but in terms of any concerns about drafting him at 15, I mean, that, that's a solid pick for me because he has history of hitting he has history of hitting on a winning team at Ole Miss that won a college world series a few years ago um put that together with last year he kind of sold out for power a little bit and this year rebounded I think that's actually a positive for him because it shows an ability to adjust and still hit for power you know that the power is in there now if the White Sox can find a way with their development staff to be like hey we still want you to be that 1520 homer guy but also we don't want you trying to sell out for it how can we get those two concepts together. I think that's in there. And if you have somebody who's above average hit, above average power, playing a premium position at shortstop, which again, I think he can stay there for the long term, not necessarily be gold glove or anything, but at least stay there. Um, that's really special. And that, especially in this age now of, you know, what shortstops are, you used to think of a shortstop as like a 5'10", 5'11", scrappy guy who was glove first. Now we're looking at the age of taller shortstops. He certainly fits in that at six foot two and 
with the bat, I think he could be kind of that perfect mold, I guess, uh, for that tall shortstop moving forward. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great insight. So one more uh, Gonzalez question for you, which is, I guess it's kind of two two part question. The first part is, how do you see his development going from a timeline standpoint? And that do you think he's going to be a fast riser? Do you think he has the potential to make the majors in the next maybe two years, perhaps? And also because he's a bit of a, I don't know if he's that unique, but just the fact that he, like you said, is kind of a bit of a slow runner for a shortstop that has all these other advanced tools. We've kind of been struggling as a fan base and, you know, the three of us on this on this podcast to come up with like a player comparison for him. And I know those are always really, you know, like, like hit or miss. But if you could give any sort of comparison in addition to uh, addressing his timeline, that would be really helpful for us. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the timeline, um, he is somebody who could move quick. He was a three-year performer at Ole Miss. He was in discussions to be the freshman of the year uh, in 2021. So he's performed every year. I don't think there's really much left to prove with the bat. I would probably start him out at high A next year, like as advanced as he could be. Um, I think you just give give him time at high A just to prove that he can do it. Move him to double A within a month or two if he hits the ground running as we kind of expect. And then you're right. I think he's kind of on that track to maybe be on the south side by – you know, all-star break 2025. I think he can move that quick. Depends on how they view the defense, but I think the bat's certainly going to be above the glove and can push that. And then I'm, you know, he's somebody I'm really excited to see hit in Charlotte, which is a launching pad. What kind of power numbers could he put up there and really be knocking on the door? But I, I, considering how long of a performance history he has, I don't think it's going to take him very long, especially his approach. He's always been somebody who's walked more than he struck out in college. So I think that's going to carry pretty well. So I would definitely see him up in the majors in two years. Comps, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm not a huge fan of comps. I think they kind of set up expectations. You you can look at like big shortstops and think of like Carlos Correa, somebody like that, who isn't necessarily a great mover, especially now with some of those injury concerns, but it continues to stay at short. But like Carlos Correa was a number one overall pick and has won World Series and is a really good hitter. Uh, and I don't think Jay, Jacob Gonzalez is going to reach those heights. But we are seeing now, like I was saying earlier, this age now where you can kind of live with bigger shortstops if they play adequate defense and are really good hitters. And Gonzalez is is in that mold. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in seeing how he develops for sure. Um, I think that was a very solid draft pick for the White Sox. And I think they've won a little higher risk, high reward the past couple of years. So um, he's a bit of a safer prospect. So I'm very excited to see how he progresses in the next couple of years. Um, getting a little bit deeper into the uh, Sox draft class, you had mentioned earlier how they went uh, heavy you know, with pitching prospects early. Um, one of the pitchers that I'm curious about is Christian Upper. I hope I'm saying his name right. But um, he's, he's one of the more intriguing names on their, um, in their draft class this year. And I know he's someone that the Sox had interested in last year. The athletics kind of beat them to it drafting him. But I was curious if you can give us your thoughts on him and see what kind of what kind of pitcher he is and, you know, what what maybe he has to work on a little bit to reach his upside. Yeah, I mean, I really do like the upside of Christian Hopper. I mean, 11th round pick last year, fifth round pick this year after going to junior college. Uh, the A's actually could have signed him because of the junior college rules right up until the draft. I mean, they, it was a draft and follow uh, situation there. They didn't work something out. So now it's the White Sox to do it. He was 152nd overall pick, but we had him ranked 225th. 
I think that's just because of the long development history in front of him. He's still only 18 years old, which is kind of crazy to talk about for uh, a junior college arm. He's on the taller side at six foot two. It's a really good fastball that can get up to 98 miles an hour. He's really athletic. So I think scouts believe that he can get there and kind of stay there. Not necessarily 98, but like sitting more in the mid nineties. And that's something to dream on, especially for an 18 years old guy at 18 years old. Those guys aren't easy to find. Um, doesn't necessarily have the, the off speed pitches you would love. I mean, the slider is below average. The changeup could be something, uh, but isn't quite there yet. And he, has below average control, but I think he's athletic enough that he's going to throw strikes. It's just having that long development period in front of him, I think is to his advantage and is to the White Sox advantage because they're going to be able to mold him as they choose. They're going to be able to work with him if they sign him. And I do think he's supremely signable um, as a fifth round pick. You don't take somebody at that spot if you don't think you can sign him. Um, so it's, it's high upside here, uh, but it's in the fifth round. So it's not a huge risk. I also love he's from Wisconsin, so playing in a cold-weather state is not going to be a big deal for him. He went to Gulf Coast State Junior College, but he's going to know the atmosphere of Chicago. Nothing's going to surprise him from that aspect. So it's going to be a while, I think, until we're talking about Christian Hopper as a major league arm, uh, and we'll see how things kind of develop. Maybe he ends up being a reliever because of those control issues, but the fact that the velocity can already get up that high to the high 90s I think is certainly promising. Yeah, and I think things definitely worked out for him. Like you said, 11-round pick last year, got up to the fifth round this year. So I think it's kind of, you know, shows more of the athletics loss than anything. He gained that much stock in one year. So I'm excited about that pick. Um, got to ask about one more player specifically, probably my favorite pick that the Sox made this year was George Wolkow in the seventh round. He's a guy that I had circled at the top of my list on uh, – for day two, I would have been thrilled if they had taken him round three, round four. Uh, then he started to fall, and I just kind of assumed that maybe he was too committed to South Carolina. But then they end up getting him in the seventh round, and I, I thought that was a great upside pick for the White Sox. I was wondering if maybe you could give us some more insight to that. Um, I know MLB Pipeline has um, his hit tool is a little bit behind everything else. So maybe you could tell us what he might need to work on with that. But I, I just think he's a great upside pick, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on him. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was a surprise that he went when he did because once you get into those later rounds on day two, you think, all right, this guy's either going to school or he's going to be a day three pick because if you don't sign him, then it doesn't count against your pool. If if the White Sox can't sign Wilkow away from that uh, South Carolina commitment, then $248,000 goes against their pool. So now they, they really have incentive to sign him. And, uh, you know, watching the broadcast on day two, Jim Callis, who, again, contributes heavily to our draft coverage, was saying he was hearing that they are going to actually be able to sign him. They're going to move some money around. They're going to make things work, but they are going to sign him, or at least their favorites to do that now, which would be huge because you look at him six foot seven, it's plus power already. You mentioned the hit tool being a question. It's because the swing is so long. Being that tall, it, it takes a while for the bat to get through the path. So the way to improve that is to shorten the swing. Uh, but the power is in there. The strength is in there. He's got a good arm that can play in right. He could be a center fielder. We'll see. I mean, we're kind of living in the age now where tall center fielders aren't out of the question as long as you can eat up uh, ground on the grass. He might end up being a below average runner, but even then he has the arm for right. So I'm really fascinated by this pick. I mean, you want to talk about comps. The one that's coming up a lot is Joey Gallo, 
uh, as somebody who has the power but is questionable hit tool. Um, but considering he's only 17 and we know we've seen Joey Gallo develop, like we know the perils of Joey Gallo, there's some time here to shorten up that swing, tighten things up, and still allow that power to play. So I'm fascinated, first, how much he's going to sign for. We're going to have to see that come out in the, in the coming days. Is it going to be like second round money? Is it going to even be maybe third or, third or even first round money? Uh, be fascinated to see how much they're able to give him. But if they can add him to that system, he can't teach power like he has. So bringing that in is going to be huge. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's definitely going to be a, a massively above slot signing, but I'm hoping they can sign him. I know there have been some reports recently that he has talked about being excited to join Arizona. So I'm, I'm really I'm really excited to see um, how he fares if and when he signs. Um, one more question for you. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on – the White Sox Hall in day three. I want to see if there was any players that you may have had in mind that could be a sleeper for the White Sox draft. Like maybe one guy on day three that you think has a better shot than the rest to actually make it to the majors. I know, you know, those day three picks are always kind of, you know, like lottery picks. You never know. You're just kind of throwing darts and seeing which one sticks. So I was hoping you can give us a name that you're going to keep an eye on for, for this, uh, for this class. Yeah, I mean, this one is is almost more storyline than than stuff, but there is stuff there. It's Matthias Lacombe, uh, the French pitcher that they took in the twelfth round. He's pitched in Kachais College in Arizona, um, which is a, a junior college. So you know, we'll see how things go along with that. But six foot two, right hander, uh, already up to 90, 95 range. He has the makings of a slider, though it's inconsistent. Uh, but the fact that he is somebody with international experience already, and I don't mean just coming from France, he pitched for Team France in the World Baseball Classic qualifiers. Uh, and their manager was Bruce Bochy, who is obviously now managing the Rangers. I don't think Bruce Bochy necessarily changed his trajectory or put his hands on him too much, but it's interesting that he was taken for that team. He's pitched in big spots already. Uh, and, you know, we don't hear that many French ba- baseball players. So the fact that he became not only just a draft pick, but a 12th round pick, not somebody you're a complete flyer later in the rounds, I think is, is telling. Um, so, you know, can they develop a, a slider with him? Can they get another pitch with him? We'll have to see, but that would be huge. I mean, I, you look at expanding the game and getting more major leaders from more countries. He's going to be one I'm going to be following closely just to see how he develops in that Chicago system. Sam, this is all super, super awesome information. I'll definitely be holding you to that uh, Carlos Correa comp on Jake. <laughs> this is why it. I don't <laughs> like cops because people, they're like, oh, well, you said Correa. It's like, no, that's not. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Yeah. And truly, it's truly awesome information, awesome insight from you. Before we let you go, for anybody who might be hearing of you or the work you do for the first time, I want to give the opportunity to just let everyone know where they can find you and, um, again, what some of the work you do beyond um, – uh, what were you doing here with us? Yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter at Sam Dystra M I L B. Um, as long as Twitter is going to continue to exist, um, I guess I'm also on Blue Sky and Threads, though I haven't really posted much on that stuff yet. Uh, I host the Minor League Baseball podcast each week with my colleagues Tyler Mon and Benjamin Hill, called the Show Before the Show. Um, that comes out every Friday. So find us wherever podcasts are available. We're talking about on-field minor league stuff. We just did a futures game draft last week. Uh, we're talking about off-field stuff. Ben is big into minor league promotions. Of course, they're 
are all sorts of wacky things happening uh, outside the lines in my early baseball. So we're talking about that each week. And then, you know, writing, writing reports, we're always updating our top 30 lists uh, as guys graduate or, you know, especially this is going to be our busy period coming up on the trade deadline. Uh, as guys move, we update our top 30s immediately. So keeping peeled on our MLB pipeline top 30 prospect rankings. And, you know, as guys graduate too off the top 100, we're updating that too. We'll do a big full update uh, in August after draft picks sign, after the trade deadline, after the dust is settled and all that. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're hitting a busy period here. Even when it seems like things are calming down a little after the draft, things are about to ramp right back up. It's going to be uh, quite the day when people start dropping their uh, threads handles yeah, right, instead of their Twitter handles is what I'm starting to learn. But best of luck with everything. I know, it, like you said, it's busy period coming up for you. Sam, really do appreciate your time and your insights and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, anytime. Thanks so much for having me, guys. That was a great interview, guys. Um, definitely want to shout out to Sam Dykstra and Michael Suaro for uh, joining the episode. Um, some great insight. You know, if you don't know a ton about the MLB draft, I hope you guys all come away understanding a little bit more about the entire process and hopefully what the White Sox were uh, had on their mind. But as far as having things on their mind, um, a lot of you have a lot of things on your mind, a lot of questions on your mind. So we are going to jump into the very first at least since I've been here, socks on 35th fan questions. You know, hopefully this is a segment that we can do moving forward. Um, hopefully it gets a little bit positive as we move forward. Um, yeah, no kidding. There is a, there's a lot of good questions in here. And, uh, you know, we're just going to jump right in. Hopefully by this time next year, we're talking about uh, who, what the playoff rotation or something is going to be instead of uh, instead of this. But anyway, just starting right off the top uh, from White Sox UK at White Sox underscore UK. If you could pick three players to remove from the everyday lineup and replace them with any three players from White Sox history, who would you choose? Jordan, I'll let you start. So before I jump in, just for those who may not get their questions answered today, it's because a lot of you guys asked about the trade deadline and we've got a big trade deadline episode next week. Um, so we will answer the, we will plan to answer those then as for this question from white Sox UK, I, I think the most obvious one is usually when in doubt, put Frank Thomas in the lineup. Uh, so I did that. I put Frank Thomas in the lineup for Andrew Vaughn. Um, I think that is a fair trade to make, um, from there, I think second base and right field are two good places to target. I considered putting Fisk or a uh, catcher in there for Grandal. I, I chose against it. Um, Ray Durham, I picked for literally any second baseman you want to take off the roster. Um, you know, Tim Anderson has been brutal. I chose Durham switch hitting ability and 10, nearly 10% walk rate for his career. Um, I went with him and very specifically, my, my third guy was replacing Colas in right field or whoever you want to say is in right field with the 2004 version of Aaron Rowan, who was on the team who was a top 20 player in baseball that season by wins above replacement, 5.8 F4 that season, over 500 slugging. We, we talk a lot about center fielders with the White Sox, and the White Sox don't have a long history or a good history pre-Luis Robert. Um, and Aaron Rowan is certainly a name that seems to get forgotten sometimes. And that season specifically, six-war player, nearly six-war player, uh, just slide him over to right field. He'll be fine out there. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting way of looking at it. I think that 
definitely ruined. I mean, I honestly don't remember too much of his tenure with the White Sox, but I know that whenever I'm looking at like past teams or like White Sox stats, like as a franchise, he's always up there if you look at individual seasons. So it's it's a nice pick for sure. I also kind of took a similar approach to you for this question where I'm thinking, I agree, get Frank Thomas and by any means necessary. But I didn't replace Vaughn with him. I replaced whoever the DH is. If you want to call that Berger, then fine. If you want to call him Jimenez, then fine. I don't really care. Those guys have probably been better than Vaughn this year. But going forward, I would probably, I mean, going forward, I would take Vaughn over Berger is how I would say that. Jimenez, not necessarily, but that's why I did it that way. And we can debate about that another time, I guess. And then as for the other picks, I uh, I did what Jordan said he was thinking about doing. I put Carlton Fisk in that catcher just because Grandal and Zavala, who've kind of, it's not even really been that much of a playing time disparity. Like Grandal has more starts, but not by that much. I just think that's a big upgrade. And then second base also, I removed, uh, I guess he would take Elvis out and I put in Nellie Fox, but I don't think there's really a wrong answer there. In the sense that the White Sox have a long history of really good second baseman and shortstops and that's kind of an easy one to do i know i literally looked at the second base list i'm like oh my god like iguchi maybe like ray durham like nelly fox is like there are like five good second basemen in white Sox history if you really really take the time to look back at it you know nick i'm sick because he stole nelly fox from me um i'm glad you went old school though i do appreciate that but as you guys said there's really not a whole lot to pick from i mean i see uh I see a whole lot of Gordon Beckham here, and that's that's not going to be my answer. Um, you know, I think Tadahito, that's that's a guy that a lot of people go to, you know, because really in our recent history, that is kind of our last good second baseman, and you really only had a, a small stretch, unfortunately, with us, um, but a great stretch. I really did enjoy Tadahito Gucci. Um, I'm going to go way old school and I'm going to go Eddie Collins because Nick stole Nelly Fox, and Eddie Collins was a very swell baseball player. Um, I'm going to continue this, uh, frame of old school. Um, Frank Thomas, that is the obvious one. You know, I think anybody would pick Frank Thomas. So I'm going to go against the grain a little bit. Um, I will say I will take Carlton Fisk a catcher because holy hell is uh catcher, a pretty tough position for the White Sox. And it kind of has been since AJ Pierzynski, um, had a lot of high hopes for Yasmani Grandal, but obviously, you know, and I'm still a big Yaz guy to this day, but there's just, there's, we just never got what we wanted out of that. Um, and if we're putting somebody in the outfield and we're uh, pretty free to move them around, it is impossible for me to not put Dick Allen in right field. That's a good call. I always Dick struggle. Famer, by the way, I, I always struggle with, and maybe it's, I overthought this question. I always struggle with putting like super historical players into it. Cause it's the argument of what well, would they even be successful? That version of them would be, they be successful today. I think that's overthinking the question and, gee jordan overthought something like yeah no kidding um but that, that's why i that's why most of mine i mean durham was the farthest back and thomas were kind of the same thing where it's I, I didn't go too far back but to your point if i really looked back that that's definitely a name especially if i'm putting one in the outfield yeah no and i and i say this as frank thomas being my favorite chicago white Sox player of all time um he is one of my picks obviously every single time but just because you two picked him i had to had to go against the grain a little bit. Paul Canerco obviously is right there, and Paul would add a lot more defensively than a guy like Frank Thomas would. Um, 
But that's a conversation for another day. Good question, White Sox UK. All right, moving on to Chief Gregory Roberts. And I know Jordan just loves this question, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, how many games have White Sox relief pitchers blown this season after the sixth inning? Please break down the number of leads blown after the six by each pitcher. Thanks. This this reminds me of a math question where they ask you to explain your work after doing the work, and it's just ugh, it's rough. But thank you for the question, Chief. So they gave the math question to me. Uh, so long story short, the, the White Sox actually do have the second most blown saves, um, in baseball this season. The breakdown is as follows. Uh, Joe Kelly has six leads the team in that. So Duke thought we were starting an Aaron Bummer argument with this question. We're not. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez has five blown saves. Graveman has three Middleton, two Bummer, two. Uh, both Diekman and Colome on their ways out, uh, added one for the point for the, uh, for points. Um, I don't love the way blown saves or this question, this question in general is hard. Cause it's like, you would have to go through every single game and be like, who blew a lead in the sixth and going down memory lane of, over these 80 games is not something I wanted to do personally. Blown saves are good because it's not just the ninth inning. It's like anytime you're in a save situation. So that could be seventh inning on for the most part because three inning saves are a thing. Um, So that kind of gives a general sense of how many late leads the White Sox have blown. The White Sox have blown quite a few, second most in baseball. The problem with looking at it that way is, is that, and we've discussed this on previous podcasts, the, the offense is not given the pitching staff room for error. Like there are teams like the Rays who are near the top um, in blown saves that are really, really good. And that's because, well, they get a lot of leads and sometimes the bullpen's going to blow it. That's just the nature of baseball. The problem with the White Sox is they're not getting a lot of leads. So it feels like every opportunity they get, you're all the bullpen did this. You can't give a team a three to two lead with nine outs to cover and say, all right, let's blame the bullpen today when they can't hold a lead for three innings every time. Like, I just, I don't find that fair to blame on the bullpen. I I think offense remains number one biggest issue for this team. I know everyone likes to clown the Sox about spending on the bullpen and this and that is It just does not register to me as one of the top issues for this team. If you rank them like offense, defense, starting pitching, relief pitching is how I would put it. Like you, you can't win if you put your team in high leverage situations every game. Like you're going to have more blown saves if you're in safe situations every game. That's just the nature of a bullpen. So yeah, it's like if you want to count the blown saves and just look at the number itself, fine. But it goes so far beyond that for me. That's like, okay, why are they blowing so many saves? It's like, well, it's because they're in a lot of late, close situations which is you're not going to convert all those straight up and so it's a tough question it's a tough part of the blame game i just still feel like the offense needs to get the vast majority of the blame for the way this season and previous seasons have gone so jordan that was genuinely a very long answer and i know i talk a lot so like with within within that entire answer not once did you break down the number of leads blown after the six by each pitcher and in each situation. So you in no way answered the question. 
Nah, I kind of <laughs> I, I showed my work. I'd get partial credit <laughs> on that one if I was grading my own test. No, I mean, I, I agree with most all of what you said. Um, I, I, I really do think, especially in a season like this with the White Sox, you know, with the Liam Hendricks situation we had to deal with early on, it's very hard to gauge a bullpen by blown saves because, you know, I think it's a good indicator for one reliever and one reliever only, and that's the guy that takes the ball in the ninth. Because if a guy in the ninth is blowing a save, that's a little bit more different than a guy, you know, as you said, Jordan, that's going to be blowing a save in the seventh or the eighth. Um, is it ideal? No, probably not. But when you're in tight ball games and you have guys in the bullpen who, listen, you don't need your bullpen guys to be world beaters. You need them to be just kind of good enough. There's a reason, and I don't want to say this to the detriment of any relievers because there's great relievers, there's great you know career relievers who have never been uh, closers, but there's a reason they're in the bullpen, and it's because if you see too much of them, you start to see why they're in the bullpen in the nicest way possible. But um, I think it's a, it's a tough indicator of a bullpen in its entirety, and I think it's a better – measuring stick of a closer like if we were looking at Liam Hendricks coming into this season you know from day one and we're looking at his blown saves that's a little bit different of a conversation or you know if you look back historically at closers we've had in the past or closers other teams dealt with you know like a like a like a Craig Kimbrell when he kind of was having a tough stretch um, for a couple years there um, blowing saves, you know, even even a Bobby Jenks with the White Sox, you know, he had his blowing saves here and there. That's a little bit different when you're when you're not handing the ball over to anybody else past you. It's supposed to be you. You're supposed to be the guy to lock it down. But as far as looking at guys like, you know, and eat wow, you know, can't believe I'm gonna actually defend a guy like Aaron Bummer, but even looking at guys like that, um, it's really hard to put the blame on them when they're not the last guy that's supposed to take the baseball. So um good question. I I, I know what you were getting at with it, um, because you know, blown saves are not ideal, but it's it's hard it's hard to say because we just flat out do not have a closer. We have very much committee, and it's hard to judge everybody based on that. Um, but moving forward, unless you have anything else to add, Jordan? Nope, just that uh, you'll come around on Bummer. I promise. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to uh, hold my breath on that whatsoever, and uh, <laughs> cannot wait to discuss that on a later episode. But um, so as far as these next questions, we've we have about four here and they were all kind of framed differently, but all for the most part asking the same question. Um, it's a lot of and DJC at DJC 605, Gein's Baseball at Gein's World, Logan Hard at Logan Hard and Adam Nitz at Adam underscore Nitz. You all asked some pretty good Rick Hahn questions. For the most part, we were kind of getting to the same point with it. Nick, I'll let you take this, by the way. Um, I guess the best way I would see it framed because it's a lot of Rick Hahn said he would step down if the team was not succeeding. Um, let's pose, let's pose that Han actually gets mutually agreed parting ways. Um, what will it take for anyone in the front office to lose their jobs? I thought, um, I, I think the best way to really frame it and make this an answerable question. If you had to pick one person to be the new white Sox general manager, who would it be and why? Because I think we have hit so many situations with, the fact that Rick Hahn's going to get fired or he's going to leave or in some way Rick Hahn will no longer be here. You know, I, I guess the best way I can answer it is if we do have a new guy next year, who is it? And uh, if you have anybody in mind, Nick. Yeah. I mean, definitely it's not something we talk about too often on the show, but I'm glad that we're getting the chance to do it now because I think when you talk about, you know, why is he now stepped down? What will it take for him to step down and, and do I'll get to what you, what you said for sure. But just to start off with that, uh, yeah, I think that 
you you look at the situation objectively and you see that obviously it's not a good team and you really don't really have the excuse anymore. I think it was always a bad excuse if you asked me, but you could rely on injuries and say, oh, there were too many injuries, so you can't judge you know, anybody harshly. At this point, I think they've actually been pretty healthy this year and the guys who have gotten hurt for extended periods of time aren't the same ones for the most part. Like, for example, Luis Robert up until now has been very healthy this year, but you can't use that excuse anymore. The pitching, starting pitching, I should say, has been healthy aside from like, you know, Clevenger who was never here anyway. So that excuse has kind of gone away. And I think when it comes down to it, just that there are only 30 GM jobs in baseball. And as much as it sounds nice for one of them to say, hey, if the team isn't meeting expectations, I'm going to step down. That's just not going to happen. Even if he says it, I think he just, someone would just say that because it, it's a good sound bite and it's like technically the right thing to say but in practice would they do it i don't think so but it's unfortunate for you know fans who don't like him but that's the way i see it as for who would uh, be the successor or where things will go from here i mean i think personally unless jerry reinsdorf no longer owns the team you're not really going to see uh, a major shakeup in the front office unless those front office members are leaving on their own accord so if that happens say in this world where he does leave on his own accord I feel like you're talking about guys like Chris Getz or Mike Shirley, pretty much people who are already in the front office. Like I have a hard time seeing them go with an outside hire as much as we would like to see that. So how much would things really change with one of those guys as GM is, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I think we probably have a similar guess, but unfortunately, and I understand why this is such a big question. I don't think there's this big, you know, groundbreaking name waiting in the wings or that we haven't heard of. And, and really that's part of it too, is I think a lot of the good, GMs and managers are, I mean, everyone starts somewhere, right? Like it's possible that's someone that we've never heard of. So that's why I'm not really giving a direct name other than guys who are already in the organization. That's actually part of why I originally liked the Griffel uh, hiring just because he wasn't, you know, this one of the same names we always hear. I'd like giving someone new a chance, but at the same time that somebody new was pretty much guaranteed to come from the White Sox. So that's kind of my two cents on that. I love the question of, why hasn't Rick Hahn stepped down? They're not performing. Like he said he would. Like, would you? I wouldn't. I got one of the, I, I have a job that only 29 other people have in baseball. Even if I'm terrible at it, I wouldn't step down. Like there are worse GMs. Absolutely. There are better GMs. Absolutely. But would I ever step down unless like told to? No. Like, does that make me bad? Uh, I Maybe. I don't know. I don't, if you can honestly say you'd step down from a job that pays you millions of dollars and that only 29 other people have, like, good for you. Like, I, I'm not one of those good people, straight up. Um, so that's why he hasn't stepped down, because he hasn't been asked to either. You saw someone like, the, the only person we've really seen do it is Robin Ventura, who basically said, I'm not doing this managing thing anymore. The Sox would have brought him back. They're loyal to a fault. We, we all kind of know this stuff. And I think it's why a lot of my thoughts echo next. It's like, yeah, you're if you're looking for a name, looking in, internally is probably the best place. The Chris Getz is Sam Mondry Cohen. I've heard it wouldn't be Mondry Cohen. I don't know why. I don't know the rationale behind it. That's just what I've heard. Feel free to read into that all you want. I have nothing other than that to say about Mondry Cohen. It would be nice. It would be a, a situation that makes sense from outside the organization. He's had a year to learn about the organization. And then he takes over. I'm fine with that. The reality is, like, where do all the best GMs come from? They all start from the Rays system or the Dodgers system. And they were analysts who worked their way up through the system. And now the Rays no longer have a place for them. And they go find a job somewhere else. That, that's how it works. You find teams 
who have good farm systems, good development teams, um, and poach from those guys. If you're really serious about turning this over, and I agree with Nick, I don't think there's a name. I think it, you could give me any former Rays analyst and farm director, and I'd probably say it's a great hire. Like That's just because of the reputation of where you're coming from rather than necessarily what you do. Um, in the case of Grafal, it's kind of the same way, except it was the opposite. It wasn't where he was coming from. It was the resume he had. Might it work long-term? I don't know. Do I think it's fair to say he should be fired after 80 games? Absolutely not. I, I think there have been bad managers who have a bad, or good managers who have a bad first year. Like, I, I don't think it's fair to judge anybody. Um, off of the managing they did of this team over 80 games. Um, I guess that's a long way of saying it's like there are, you're, you're going to get a job based on either the experience you have or where you come from for the Sox, It seems like it's really depended on what position they're looking for. For fall was a nice case of the experience you have where it was outside the organization. If they were to do a GM hire and it's external, like just find a team with a good system in place and find someone that you like from there who says the right things to you. I I think that's already a step in the right direction, but it comes back to loyalty to a fault with this team at the end of the day, that is going to continue to um, reign overall. And that's that's kind of the key to this question, and that's why I kind of wanted to pose it, because um, I was interested to see what you guys thought about how much power this organization would genuinely be willing to give, or if we were going to look outside of the organization, because you know I think as a white you know I think as a White Sox fan, the number one thing we want to do is go outside of the organization. Like we're kind of done with the basis that Jerry Reinsdorf has built, but you know we look and you know we kind of look and it hasn't totally panned out for him, but we look at the other Jerry Reinsdorf owned team with the bulls and the fact that they finally took that step to kind of get some of the old guard out of there and bring in some, you know, fresh blood. Now, has that totally panned out? This isn't a bulls podcast, but we're kind of teetering right now, regardless. Um, you know, I think what, I think what white Sox fans need to get out of the way right away is like the Theo Epstein, Theo Epstein's the Billy beans of the world. Like, you know, that's fun. It's not going to happen. Like, come on. Like, let's be a little realistic. Uh, but as far as if this team were to finally decide, okay, we're going to give up a little bit of power, um, I think you can go in two different directions. And, you know, ironically, Jordan, you brought up the Rays organization. And honestly, both the people that I have on my list here are from the Rays organization. But the hire will be based on how much power are we willing to give up. Are we willing to, you know clean house a little bit, maybe move, you know, Kenny Williams in maybe a different spot in the organization, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe even create a, create a position that seems like it's higher or closer to Jerry Reinsdorf because it seems like we're always kind of moving him higher, even though he's not doing a whole lot. Um, But are you willing to name a new president of baseball operations? Peter Bendix is sitting in Tampa Bay waiting for that job. He is waiting for the call. He is waiting to get that opportunity. And he is genuinely one of the brightest minds of all baseball. Um, if you're not familiar, he's been with the Rays for about 15 seasons. Um, he started as an intern and he has moved himself all the way up throughout the organization. Um, he is a guy that very much has a voice in the Rays organization. And even outside of the fact that 
you know, oh, the Rays are analytical or, you know, they're, they're, they're always just, they always just seem to find a way to, you know, stay above the curve in, in regards to like the players they bring in. Even looking at it from a little bit more of a basic perspective, the Rays are a, they're a small market team and they continue to bring in talent in a variation of different ways to make it work. And um, I, I really think that's where somebody in that organization is pretty important. I think B, uh, Peter Bendix is probably on the top of a lot of teams list as far as a future uh, president of baseball operations, but that is with, if the White Sox were willing to give that up. Now, if the White Sox were strictly looking to just, you know, get rid of Rick Hahn and leave everything as it is, but maybe want to bring somebody else from the outside to get a new voice. I think Carlos Rodriguez from the Rays also fills that hole. Um, very much uh, an international um, international scout type guy. He's someone who's brought in a lot of uh, a lot of the international players you see on the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, somebody who's been with the organization uh, for a while as well. He's been in multiple organizations. Um, I believe he was with the Blue Jays there for a while as well. Um, has done a great job, and I know as you know as we've seen with the White Sox, we are a team that really benefits from the international signing pool. That is a guy who could immediately bring us in. Um, bring in like uh, a positive that we have kind of had already as well as bring in a new voice. Will we bring in either of these guys? Probably not because the White Sox do not like giving up power. Nick, you probably had the most, uh, the most honest response to the entire situation. It's probably going to be somebody from already within the organization, somebody that uh, Jerry knows that he can trust with his car keys. You know, like, I, I I don't know any other way to put it. It's just kind of where we are as an organization, and it's unfortunate. Um, I If I'm going to hold out a little bit of hope that we finally wake up and a Jerry Reinsdorf team finally kind of goes the way of the Bulls and we decide that we want to clean house and bring in some outside presence, I think those are two very strong options, and I think even if we – decided not to bring in a guy like Peter, Peter Bendix as, you know, president of baseball operations. I think, I think, uh, I think you really, you really nailed with either of those hires. I think exactly what you said, Duke is the exact point. I kind of wanted to bring up too. who's the president of baseball operations for the white Sox. Like Kenny's the executive VP. Rick Hahn's a senior VP. And then it goes up to Jerry. Like. Friedman's the president of baseball operations for the Dodgers. Eric Neander for the Rays. Jed Hoyer for the Cubs. Jed Hoyer is not the Cubs manager. I don't know, or general manager. I don't know if people know that. He's not. They, they have a general manager under Jed Hoyer. Red Sox, Dave Dombrowski. It's like sometimes they're the same people making the decisions. Other times there's someone in the room helping them who knows this stuff deeply, who's a mind from outside the organization to help them. The Sox don't have that. I think the first thing they should do before GM rehire anything, find someone who can be a president of baseball operations. I think that's probably the best possible point. I'm glad you brought it up, Duke. Find someone who can run the show effectively from outside the organization. Then if you want to fill it with guys, like leaving Rick Hahn and Kenny Will, leaving these guys somewhere in the organization, it's a little bit different because now you brought in someone to run the show. Like you can truly tell who's running the show here. You know, you maybe take a little bit off of Rick Hahn's plate. You take a little bit off of Kenny's plate and you kind of restructure things the way they should be. It's like, yeah, sometimes the GM and the president of baseball ops are the same person. A lot of times they're not. And effectively having someone who's like, this is the guy that the buck stops here. Everything goes back to him. 
that's the most effective way to run the organization. And I think that's one thing they're really, really lacking is that this is the guy type thing. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it always has seemed like a committee and, you know, you, you saw it a lot and, you know, we'll move on to the next question here, but you saw it a lot with, um, with the Manny Machado situation. You know, why, why were we seeing Kenny Williams as much as we were during that entire process? You know, I, I felt like, I feel like he talked to the media more than we saw Rick Hahn talk to anybody, you know, and that was, that was a little alarming, you know, because we had been given Rick Hahn as this is the next guy in charge. This is kind of the guy that's going to, you know, be the face of the franchise moving forward. And, you know, I really think, and it's unfortunate because if, if the White Sox would have been good, I feel like we would have seen a lot more Kenny Williams than we see Rick Hahn. But right now, with the White Sox being as bad as they are, we see a lot of Rick Hahn than we do Kenny Williams. And it's just, it's uh, it's pretty convenient. Um, great questions, by the way. That uh, that covered four questions in one. So uh, um, I hope I hope in some way we answered all of them. Um, Jeff Zimmer, what's the deal with Victor Reyes? Why hasn't he gotten a call up? He's been hitting over 300, has 16 homers, is a switch hitter and a corner outfielder. Some reason they don't call him up instead of the usual suspects? I think this is a pretty straightforward answer to this one. Look at his major league stats over his career. I had a, I have a friend who's a Tigers fan. He laughed when we signed Reyes. Um, so that should tell you what Tigers fans thought of someone uh, that they got to see for a long time. Look at that. And then in terms of why specifically not him, not on the 40-man roster, you'd have to open up a spot for him. Um, and like we've seen guys like Adam Hazley put up good numbers in AAA. They, I, I don't read much into them especially for guys who have been long-term major leaguers, simply because they can just go beat up on either quad A players or beat up on young guys who are just learning how to pitch at that level and really pad their stats. I, unless they're top – you want top prospects to pad their stats there. Um, but in terms of guys who have major league experience, I don't read too much into it. And I think just the roster logistics of adding him would be probably not worth um, the hassle, I guess. Yeah, I feel like he's kind of like this year's Mark Payton or like Ryan Goins. Like the fans are like, oh, look, this guy's numbers are really good. And then you never even, like I bet people don't even remember some a couple or one or two of those names just because they come up for like 10 games and you never see him again. Yeah, I would take a chance over a guy like Zach Remillard who took forever to get his first major league chance than take a, take, not even take a chance, bring a guy up who, you know, like you said, Jordan, we've seen, what he can do at a major league level just because he can hit triple a pitching doesn't mean that that's going to change like he can magically hit major league pitching once he gets here been wrong before but yeah no i uh i would much rather take a chance on a guy that has worked his way through the minors and has gradually improved throughout the course of those years than somebody who we already kind of know who he is uh, but moving forward um zachary allen how do uh when do you feel this team will get together and win another championship oh boy what a question. Um, Nick, I'll let you take this because I'm sure you uh, I'm sure you got a great great answer for this one. I mean you better because I don't. <laughs> I was gonna say like I'm kind of putting all the pressure on you for this. Like every time there's a question like this or a conversation like this, all I can think about is like, oh, you got Luis Robert and you know, Colson Montgomery might be really good, Noah Schultz might be really good. But then beyond that, you need, you know, those really high impact players and only have one to three of those right now, depending on how it all pans out. And people always pop up. But you know what I mean? So a lot probably needs to change. It's it's going to be tough to see that happen with this current iteration, this current core. 
And, you know, I mean, it happened in 05. Sometimes things just randomly come together when you don't expect. Like, I don't think anyone really, I mean, at least from what I understand, after the 04 season, I don't think the White Sox were like, we're winning the World Series in 05. That wasn't really the vibe. So who knows? Maybe, you know, in a couple of years that just randomly happens. But short of that kind of event, I'm not really confident in saying like, oh, they just need to make, you know, this change and then it'll happen. Like A lot has to change before that, before we get to that point. The only thing I'll add on this is honestly, I'm going to wait on answering this question until we see what what happens after this year. I, I think there's a lot that could change. They, they could really blow up this roster. They're going to, by default, there's a lot of expiring contracts. They could make a change at GM. They could really shake things up. I think there's a lot on the table. I'd rather answer this question in the offseason or at the start of 2024 when we have a little bit more clarity. Because this current iteration, it might be a while if they change things up and they make some smart crafty moves at this trade deadline or over the off season, um, or in some of the guys they sign, then maybe that changes the timeline a little bit, especially considering the AL central. Um, but overall I'll answer this once we get to the end of this season and kind of see where things stand at. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's, it's more or less how this team is going to maneuver moving forward. And um, until I can see this team operate without being one extreme, AKA trying to buy everything in existence at the deadline or the other extreme where we just flat out tank for three years, it's hard for me to say that this team is going to maneuver anything in the direction where we are, where we're, we're kind of in the middle of trying to build a farm system while trying to continue to compete. So it's very hard to say um, until I see it. It's hard to say that this team will win one in the foreseeable future. Um, thanks for the question. Drew, uh, and this will be the last one for this episode. Uh, we did get plenty of questions and we will answer them probably next week or on a later podcast. Um, we, we really do enjoy the fan interaction. I've had a lot of fun doing this. Um, it's always nice to get uh, different perspectives. Um, but our last question here, Drew Boggs, who I actually just met for the first time this past weekend at Drew Boggs, six, two, three, when asked as a White Sox fan, what is the one thing you're proud of involving this organization? How should we answer that? First of all, I think, yes, first of all, thank you to everyone who sent in questions. Like we both mentioned trade deadline type pieces. We're going to save until next week. And then we just like these fan interaction questions. I, I think we'll continue to do this throughout the year. Um, one thing you're proud of involving this organization, I like the ACE program personally um, and all the teams they put together um, from a baseball perspective. I think that's good work. I think it's community-based and I think all of our answers end up kind of being community-based because um, it certainly hasn't been the play on the field. But the, the way the White Sox have really ingratiated themselves into the community, um, I think that is worth celebrating. It would be something I am proud of to say, hey, that's something cool that the White Sox have done. That's something cool I can 100% get behind. Good question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that in addition to the ACE program, just the White Sox charities in general, is a, they're always doing stuff for the community that seems to really make tangible impacts on people's lives. So that's one thing that even when the team is whatever it is, I look at that and you know I'm, I'm proud of that. And just a little bit more, more broadly too, maybe this isn't so much about the organization itself, but just being a White Sox fan. It's something that I'm sure we're all asking ourselves about lately, given how this rebuild has gone. Like, why do we even like this team beyond maybe living close to it or the fact that we've liked them for a long time? And for me, it's really just comes down to, I like that they're not necessarily the uh, most popular thing. Like, I, I know that the Cubs exist, obviously, and are like the Chicago team. And I know that bothers some people, but personally, I like that the White Sox are like 
not that team. Like that just conforms more to my personality. And I like that even though our relationships with this core of players is certainly on up and down in terms of, you know, maybe Tim Anderson, for example, is someone who has had a lot of strong opinions in both directions. I do like that for the most part, these players are hardworking, at least from what I understand. I know some fans might disagree, but I see all the hard work and I see that for a lot of them, even though they don't always show it in the same way of being expressive, it does seem like they do genuinely enjoy playing baseball and it might not look that way when the team is playing poorly. I mean, obviously, but you see it when they are in the times that they are playing well, and that's kind of what baseball is all about. So I do enjoy that. It's a good answer, Nick. I really like that answer. The South side underdog mentality. That's, that's something I genuinely take to heart. I love that. That is, I really like that answer. It's a very good answer. Um, as far as mine, it has to be, uh, has to be the charitable efforts that this team does. I think, um, I think we have, as a franchise, you know, and just looking across all sports and looking across uh, all teams, really across the MLB, I think we really have a special way of connecting to fans, um, whether fans are, um, you know, they're struggling with the disease, whether fans are struggling with, you know, being accepted. You know, I think this I think this team does a great job um, really bringing a togetherness vibe as far as, you know, bringing everybody together at the ballpark. Um, make, uh, having everybody donate to a good cause um, and just just the overall vibe of um, really what we do for the community or what they do for the community and what they do for charity. Um, I, I It's a personal favorite of mine. And I know it's super corny, but like even the Steve Stone and Jason Benetti t-shirts last year, you know what I mean? Like it was this kind of like competition type thing. You know, they, they had a great time with it in the booth and it ended up all going for a really good cause, you know, and it got a lot of people to the ballpark that night. Got a lot of people to donate some money. Um, 50-50 raffle is always cool. Um, I always like going up to the uh, charity shop when I'm at the ballpark and uh, making sure to spend a little bit of money if I want to sign baseball or game use baseball. Um, it, it, I just I like that that's always going to a good cause, and that goes without saying um, how much support Liam Hendricks has gotten and how much they've really given Liam Hendricks the, uh, the avenue to be able to um, reach out to a lot of other people who have suffered with cancer. Um, if you've ever lost somebody with cancer, that obviously hits a little bit different. Um, I'm very proud to actually be wearing one of his wristbands at all times. You know, I, I just, I think that, I think that's cool, you know, and I think it's cool outside of just, you know, even donating money to a cause, but, uh, just bringing awareness and, uh, bringing people together, you know, in a way that only a sport like baseball can. And I think the White Sox, uh, admit all their downfalls and all their pitfalls and a lot of the things we could say about Jerry Reinsdorf and how much Jerry Reinsdorf loves the fact that he spent money on concessions. I do think this team genuinely does a really good job giving back to the community it surrounds and the people who cheer for this baseball team. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for this week of the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Um, a special shout out to Sam Dykstra and Michael Suaro for joining the show to discuss the draft. Some awesome insight in there. Highly recommend giving both of them a follow on Twitter as well. Um, also be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin. Joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week as we cover another week of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox. I like the vibes we ended with this, boys. Go Sox. Yeah, those are some good answers. Go Sox.